Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Let's continue with our exploration of faith and priesthood healing in the days of our ancestors during the leadership of the prophet Joseph Smith. We had just heard the story of how prayers of faith had saved our people during a cholera outbreak in the 1830s. But we ran out of time before we got to the great day of priesthood healing in the city of Nauvoo. Okay, Reed, let's continue. Okay, let's jump into our Wayback Machine and pick it up just before that so we can slide into it. Okay. So, from this incredible story, we learn that prayer can heal, even in the midst of a cholera pandemic. In the end, we lost Missouri, and we lost Ohio. But the terrible trials the saints suffered in Missouri did not go unnoticed by the citizens of the state of Illinois. They welcomed our people to the state. Many of the saints found friendship in and around the town of Quincy. Brigham Young led the exodus from Missouri to Illinois, since our prophet was still imprisoned in Liberty Jail at the time. It was good practice for Brother Brigham. 
and he would later say that his experience helped him better organize the saints' exodus into the Salt Lake Valley years later. Once Joseph was able to get out of Missouri, he joined his family in Quincy. The prophet was only in Illinois a short time when he made plans to build a new refuge city for the saints. He chose a large swampy farm with a few buildings on it along the Mississippi River. It was known as Commerce, Illinois. But the prophet renamed it Nauvoo, an ancient Hebrew word meaning beautiful place. It was a prophetic and hopeful name for a dirty old swamp, but it was the best the poor saints could do. They knew that in time the Lord would bless it. Here is the story of how Nauvoo started. When Joseph Smith first came to Commerce, a Mr. White was living there. He offered to sell the prophet his farm for $2,500, with $500 up front and the rest one year later. Joseph and the brethren were talking about this offer when some of them said, We can't buy it, for we lack the money. Joseph took out his purse, and emptying out its contents, gave each of the brethren a half dollar, leaving him penniless. Addressing the brethren, he said, Now you all have money, and I have none. But the time will come when I will have money, and you will have none. He then told Bishop Knight, You go back and buy that farm. Bishop Knight went to White, but learned that he had raised the price $100 since the first meeting. The bishop returned to Joseph without closing the bargain. Joseph sent him back with orders to purchase the farm. But Bishop Knight, finding that White had raised the price still another $100, returned again without purchasing it. For the third time, Joseph commanded him to go and buy the farm, and ordered him not to come back until he had done so. When Bishop Knight got back to White, he had raised the price again, making the whole amount $2,800. However, the bargain was closed, and the contract was drawn up. But how the money was going to be raised, neither Bishop Knight nor the other brethren could see. The next morning, Joseph and several of the brethren went down to Mr. White's to sign the contract and make the first payment on the land. A table was brought out with the papers upon it, and Joseph signed them. Then he moved back from the table and sat with his head down, as if in thought for a moment. Just then, a man drove up in a carriage and asked if Mr. Smith was there. Joseph, hearing his name, got up and went to the door. The man said, Good morning, Mr. Smith. I am on a speculation today. I want to buy some land and thought I would come and see you. Joseph pointed around to all the land that he had just signed the contract for, but the man said, I can't go with you today to see the land. Do you want any money this morning? Joseph replied that he would like some. And when the stranger asked how much, the prophet told him $500. The man walked into the house with Joseph, emptied a small sack of gold on the table, and counted out that amount. He then handed to Joseph another $100, saying, Mr. Smith, I make you a present of this. After this transpired, Joseph laughed and said to the brethren, You trusted in money, but I trusted in God. Now I have the money, and you have none. The saints got busy draining the swampy land around Nauvoo, but it was not soon enough, for disease attacked our people. Wilfred Woodruff witnessed much of the pandemic at the time, and he also witnessed the power of the priesthood to heal. He said, While I was living in a cabin in the old barracks of commerce, we experienced a day of God's power with the prophet Joseph. It was a very sickly time, and Joseph had given up his home in commerce to the sick. He had a tent pitched in his yard and was living in that himself. The large number of saints who had been driven out of Missouri were flocking into commerce, but had no homes to go into. They were living in wagons, in tents, and on the ground. 
Many, therefore, were sick through the exposure they were subject to. Brother Joseph had waited on the sick until he was worn out and nearly sick himself. On the morning of the 22nd of July, 1839, he arose, reflecting upon the situation of the saints of God in their persecutions and afflictions. He called upon the Lord in prayer, and the power of God rested upon him mightily, and as Jesus healed all sick around him in his day, so Joseph, the prophet of God, healed all around him on this occasion. He healed all around his house. Then, in company with Sidney Rigdon and several of the twelve, he went among the sick laying on the bank of the river and commanded them in a loud voice, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come up and be made whole. They were all healed. When he had healed all that were sick on the east side of the river, they crossed the Mississippi River in a ferry boat to the west side, to Montrose, where we were. The first house they went to was President Brigham Young's. He was sick on his bed at the time. The prophet went into his house and healed him, and they all came out together. As they were passing by my door, Brother Joseph said, Brother Woodruff, follow me. Those were the only words spoken by any of the company from the time they left Brother Brigham's house till we crossed the public square and entered Brother Fordham's house. Brother Fordham had been dying for an hour, and we expected each minute would be his last. When we entered the house, Brother Joseph walked up to Brother Fordham and took him by the right hand. In his left hand, he held his hat. He saw that Brother Fordham's eyes were glazed and that he was speechless and unconscious. After taking hold of his hand, he looked down into the dying man's face and said, Brother Fordham, do you not know me? At first he made no reply, but we could all see the effect of the Spirit of God resting upon him. He again said, Elijah, do you not know me? With a low whisper, Brother Fordham answered, Yes. The prophet then said, Have you not the faith to be healed? The answer, which was a little plainer than before, was, I am afraid it is too late. If you had come sooner, I think I might have been. He had the appearance of a man waking from sleep. It was the sleep of death. Joseph then said, Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? I do, Brother Joseph, was the response. Then the prophet of God spoke with a loud voice, And in the majesty of the Godhead, Elijah, I command you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth to arise and be made whole. The words of the prophet were not like the words of a man but like the voice of God. It seemed to me that the house shook from its foundation. Elijah Fordham leaped from his bed like a man raised from the dead. A healthy color came into his face, and life was manifested in every act. It was the greatest day for the manifestation of the power of God through the gift of healing since the organization of the church. In a very short time, a beautiful city began to rise along the banks of the Mississippi River. While it was not Zion City the saints had wanted, it was a beautiful place of rest to regather and wait until the Lord made his will known again to the church. The prophet Joseph would later say, I preached to a large congregation at the stand on the science and practice of medicine, desiring to persuade the saints to trust in God when sick, and not in any arm of flesh, and live by faith, and not by medicine or poison. And when they were sick, and had called for the elders to pray for them, and they were not healed, to use herbs and mild food. Now, before anyone thinks that I'm anti-medicine, because I'm not, I have benefited many times from modern medicine, but I have also benefited many times from priesthood blessings. I think the point here is how much faith do you really have? 
How much faith do you really have in the Lord's ability to heal you? How much faith do you have that the priesthood has been restored and can indeed be a means of not only creating a world, stopping cholera, but also ending a pandemic? I know some will say that these are old stories, but let's look at a more modern one. The last major pandemic, the so-called Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. After all, it's the one that our current fears are based on. The following is from the life of John D. Monk, a young missionary at the time, serving in the islands of Tahiti. This private account comes from my Uncle Charles Monk, who is his son. A testimony by Elder John D. Monk of Cowley, Wyoming, who filled the mission in the Society Islands from 1915 to 1919. While engaged in missionary work on the island of Hikaru, we decided to build a new church. It was to be a frame building. The stone for the foundation had to be taken from the sea. This was very strenuous work, and contention arose among the members of the branch. In order to restore harmony, we set a day apart as a fast day. In that country, it was customary on such occasions, whether Sunday or not, to hold meetings just as if it were the Sabbath day. During the meeting, many bore fine testimonies. When my turn came to talk, among other things I told them, that there would come a devastating sickness which would cover the lands, and in order to avoid this great sickness, it would be necessary for every one of us to repent so that harmony might be restored. And I promised them that if they would repent and live their religion, not one of them would be afflicted with that terrible sickness which would cover the entire country. After returning to my seat, I said to my companion, who was Glen A. Hubbard, Whatever possessed me to say such things? My companion said, Yes, you told them sure enough, and it will all come true. The words of my companion made me feel much better. After the meeting, the people were very pleased. They all came and shook hands with us, saying, We are ready to do anything we are asked to obey those in authority. From that time on, we had no trouble. The work was completed and everyone was happy. Shortly after this, I returned to the mission headquarters, which was several hundred miles away, and from there I was transferred to the island of Tubuai, which is located on the Tropic of Capricorn. Elder Benson and I were sent to join Elders Burbridge and Heslip. We were to reestablish the work there. Some twenty years before, the missionaries had been banished from that land and forbidden to return. I was instructed to regain the title to the church house there. This was done without much trouble. Many of the people were very good and kind to us, but some were very rebellious and wished us to be sent away. They insisted on telling us what to do and say. However, there was a native missionary among them who had been there a number of years. He had been subjected to their desires. When we discovered this, we released him and asked that he return home. Now the rebellious group objected to this. They decided to go to the mission headquarters as a delegation and have the missionaries expelled from their land, or they would set up a new religion with the native missionary as their pastor. Shortly after this, I received a call to join the U.S. Army. This made it necessary for me to return to headquarters to comply with the draft law. After eight days on a very stormy sea, we arrived at the headquarters at Tahiti. There were 32 on board the ship. Very soon after our arrival at the capital island, the flu broke out. 
having been brought from San Francisco on the English ship. Three days later, people began to be sick with the flu, and in about three days they were dying. And from then on, people died like flies. When the flu broke out, the people were dying so fast you couldn't even think of burying them. You had to use trucks to haul them off and burn them. Finally, the head of the government of the Society Islands, a Frenchman who came from France, born and raised in France and educated there, came to me and said, I want you to take charge of this place. It is your job. There are 2,000 people here. The city had 6,000 people divided into three religions. He gave me 2,000. They were nice people, so I went to work. When the flu hit, they were just dying off so fast you could not think of burying them. So I went to work. I did not know, and nobody knew what to do. They did not know anything about the flu. They had never heard of it. We do not know much about the flu now, even after all of that. I inquired of the Lord what to do. He showed me what to do. My missionary companion and I went to work. We worked almost night and day. We did not lose any people. The others were hauling them and dumping them by the truckloads. I think that at one time they had five trucks. They hauled the bodies crossways on the flat-bottom trucks, probably a 100 to 200 bodies at a time. They would take them over and drop them into a kind of pit where they had a fire, and they laid them up there by the thousands. After about 20 days, two men, the governor of the island and the head bishop of the Catholic Church, they had been locked up in a building to keep away from the flu. They came around and gave me a doctor's license, and I went to work. In about 80 days, they came again and greeted me and said, You have done the best work that has ever been done. You never lost one case. I couldn't imagine anything like that because the flu was new to me and new to everybody else, but the Lord showed me what to do and healed them from the tops of their heads to the soles of their feet, thousands of them. So after that, if there was anybody sick or needed help, they came to me in swarms, and I was able to do that because I inquired of the Lord and asked the Lord what to do. The Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, the deadliest in history, infected 500 million people worldwide. That is about a third of the planet and killed an estimated 20 to 50 million people, including about 675,000 Americans. It was under those conditions we were startled one night by someone knocking on the door and the sound of voices. We soon recognized the voices to be some people from the island of Hikaru. We found that our friends had come into the city at night in the midst of this terrible disease, not knowing about it. They asked, what makes the city so strange? No lights, no guards or pilots to guide us? We told them of the flu. They said, we are here. There is no use of our going away. We would take it to our friends at home. So we helped them establish themselves as near as the mission headquarters as possible. But we expected that nearly every one of them would be overcome by the flu. We wanted to help them all we could. Other people were dying by the hundreds, all around. The shipload from Hikaru consisted of about 75 or 80 men, women, and children. From then on, until flu was over, these helped us to care for the sick, the dead, and the dying. 
After the epidemic had passed, it was reported that about 40 or 50 percent of the population on the island had been taken by the flu. Thousands had been burned by fire because they could not be buried. We were greatly surprised when we realized that not one single soul of the 75 or 80 people who had come from Hikaru had been taken by the flu. Then it was remembered what I had promised them if they would repent and live their religion. The great and devastating disease which was to come would have no effect on them. This is a great testimony to me of the goodness of the Lord to those who will obey His teachings. One last thought in closing. The Lord made a very interesting statement, which is currently found in the book of Luke 17:26. This is what He said. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. In other words, just before the flood, there were certain conditions that existed, and these conditions would return just before the Lord's second coming. It is fair to read that verse solely as meaning that, just as men and women in Noah's day went about their sinful business as though nothing was wrong, so will men and women be caught unaware at the Lord's return. But it is also fair to ask the question, just what was going on in Noah's day that was part of mankind's sinful business? This opens up an intriguing series of discussions, because much of the answers are thousands of years old. Answers that were as laughable when given then, as some of the answers we are giving now. Here is an example of what I am trying to say. While homosexuality is as old as Cain, the ancient rabbis say that same-sex and interspecies marriage was not practiced until right before the flood. These are old commentaries by rabbis dating from 300 to 500 A.D. Here's the first one. The generation of the flood was not wiped out until they wrote marriage documents for the union of a man to a male or to an animal. Rabbi Huna, quoting Rabbi Joseph in the Genesis Rabbah. God said in the scripture, I am the Lord your God two times. I am the one who punished the generation of the flood and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and Egypt, and in the future I will punish those who do as they did. The generations of the floods were kings and were wiped off the earth when they were soaked in sexual sin. Rabbi Haya, Leviticus, Rabbah. How did pre-flood man anger God? I will tell you. A man got married to a man, and a woman to a woman, and a man married a woman and her daughter, and a woman was married to two men. Therefore it is said, and you shall not walk in their statutes. Sofra, Akarimat, Parasha, Kesha, Shmole. The book of Jasher contains another interesting sin that happened just before the flood. Abortion and vanity. Listen to this, Jasher 2.9. For in those days the sons of men began to trespass against God, and to trespass the commands which he had commanded to Adam, to be fruitful, and multiply in the earth. And some of the sons of men caused their wives to drink a drought that would render them barren, in order that they might retain their figures, and thereby their beautiful appearances might not fade. And perhaps this one, which I think is the most interesting. Found with the Dead Sea Scrolls was a small fragment of a lost book of Enoch known as the Book of the Giants. It taught that DNA manipulation was going on prior to the flood. One of the things the ancients learned was that the body contains a degree of genetic memory. It is stronger in some of God's children than others, but it can be found even in humanity. 
Through careful selective breeding, it is possible to manipulate this genetic memory and alter the Word of God on a fundamental level. This they accomplished in terms of gigantism, among other things. Once the DNA code is altered beyond repair, it can be impossible for anyone other than God to restore it. This type of human breeding occurred after the flood as well, and I explored that in length in Part 2 of our Genesis study, Gospel Feast Volume 8, Genesis and the New and Everlasting Covenant. The ancient rabbis went on to say that prior to the flood, man had successfully learned how to merge the DNA of a sheep and a goat, creating a new creature. This is very interesting, because the Lord later would say that he would come and separate the sheep from the goats. Is it possible that he had an understanding of this that is deeper than what we read in the New Testament today? Mankind has never before attempted to alter human DNA. What is worth considering, mankind is right now injecting mRNA into human beings. This medicine is designed to alter the genetic code, which the rabbis say is the Word of God. In a rather shocking twist that we did not know until modernity, all creation and all life is based on DNA, and DNA is a language made up of letters. If you could read the letters and speak the letters, could you not write the life code? The rabbis say that the life code is the Word of God, and that by manipulating it and altering it, we are literally changing the Word of God. You will remember that the Lord has said that He would allow heaven and earth to pass away before His Word would return to Him, void and unfulfilled. Celestialization has been defined by the Lord as filling the measure of one's creation and fulfilling the Word of God. These are indeed the last days. And it is important that instead of giving in to fear, each of us needs to go to the Lord in faith and ask Him what we need to do for our personal life, health, and happiness. And then have the courage to listen to His voice and to hear Him above all others. And I know, and I hope all of our listeners know as well, that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, has power to heal us and has the power to heal the earth. Thank you, everyone, for your questions, comments, and concerns. And we'd like to remind everyone that we are not endorsed or sponsored or brought to you by any church or denomination. These are our views and ours alone. Thank you again. And until our next podcast on the Book of Ruth, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. A very special thank you to Hollywood actor Robert Martin III for his retelling of the life and missionary experiences of John Monk. Thank you.